In episode one of Brand Protection 101, I discussed copyrights and I even talked about how copyrights and trademarks can sometimes be confused. But this week, we'll be specifically looking at trademarking and how it has such a kind of difficult and complex history throughout fashion legislation in the US and even abroad in London and France. This is part two of Brand Protection 101, Trademark Law, and this is The Label Law. We got London on the track. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in again. So just like I've always said, thank you guys for always tuning in. It's so cool to be able to come on and see like how many people come on here every single week just to listen. And this week for Trademark Law, we're going to be talking about a specific case. And I want to talk about this case because it's between two very well-known fashion brands. Like last week, I talked about Polo Ralph Lauren and YSL, but this week I'm actually talking about YSL again and Christian Louboutin. And this case is really famous because it made a big spark and a big, big gossip and even scare in the fashion industry. When it comes to trademark legislation, you have to be very smart about going through with your trademark case, honestly. If you're going to bring a trademark case in front of the judge, you want to make sure you win because if you don't win, that means you've basically lost your trademark. And if you've lost your trademark, you've now lost the case to that one person. And now it makes way for multiple people in the future to be able to now use what you originally had trademarked. Now, Louis Vuitton is known for having up to like 15 trademarks at a time being introduced um, with the Damier print. I mean, the Louis V monogram. There's so many different aspects. Even Takashi's colorization of the Louis V monogram is also something that's trademarked. But Louis Vuitton is very well known for not playing when it comes to that. But Louis Vuitton is not who I'm talking about when I discuss this next case. Now, first, of course, I want to go through and give a definition of trademarking. Trademark has to do with trade dress, which is something that I'm going to talk about later. And it definitely shows the difference of why it's important to have fashion law. Because that general understanding of the intersection of fashion and the law field is not really cared about by judges and it's not really seen as an important issue in the legal field in general let alone in the actual courtroom trademark law is designed to basically protect the words name symbol design or color as we're going to see in today's case even the combination of all those things that are used to identify and distinguish the goods that makes these different designers different from each other. So for example, when you think of Nike, you think of the swoosh automatically. When you think of East Saint Laurent, you think that YSL sign. When you think of Louis V, you look at that monogram Gucci, the monogram Gucci with the red, the green. Those are things that are trademarks as opposed to a copyright. 
Now, specifically when we're going to talk about this week, trademarks are what makes it most easiest for consumers to quickly identify where this product or surface has come from. And like instead of reading the fine print on some random can of some juice or something that says like, oh, this is from Coca-Cola factory. Like, no, there's going to be that Coca-Cola trademark that's on there and you're going to know it's from Coca-Cola because of that trademark. Even Y3, when it's done so many different collaborations with Adidas, everybody knows, one knows Adidas for its three stripes. And when it has Y3 on it, we all know that Y3 symbol. So today we're going to be talking about Christian Louis Vuitton versus YSL. Now, this is a landmark case. Like This is honestly one of the first cases I feel like most people who are into fashion law come across and they're like, 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 what? I did not know that something this big happened back in 2012. But I mean, in 2012, I was like 14 years old. So I'm not surprised that I didn't know too much of it at the time rather than finding out about it later. So Christian Louboutin is known for the red sole. I mean, everybody knows it's red sole, whether it's in its nail polish that has its own red sole or even any marking, it's known for that bloody red shoe. Rappers talk about it, musicians talk about it, actors talk about it. When I watch different TV shows, as soon as I see a red sole, it's Christian Louboutin. That's no question, unless it is a fake Christian Louboutin shoe, which Christian Louboutin does not play around with that. So I even doubt that it is. So Christian Louboutin, legend has it that one night he was at a party and there was a model with Coco Chanel's red nail polish on. And he had been going through some things with his own label, just feeling as though he wasn't really doing anything to differentiate himself from other shoes. And he really wanted to make himself stand out. Now, when he saw this model's red nail polish, he was like... Where'd you get that from? <laughs> and she said, oh, it's Coco Chanel. You know, da, 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 da. he asked her, could he have it? Literally. Now, of course, this is legend. So we don't know exactly how true this is. But this is the story that is told to this day about how Christian Louboutin came up with the shoe. So he took the nail polish home and went to one of his designs and painted the whole entire bottom of the shoe red. And from there, the signature was created. Louboutin went from selling 200 pairs of shoes annually and i'm not making this up like only 200 pairs of shoes to now selling over 700,000 annually and i'm sure now that that number is not even completely accurate because of the fact that like fashion industry different designers don't really come out with their exact numbers anymore which is something i'll discuss later but you heard that right, like 700,000 annually from 200. And Christian Louboutin hasn't been in the game like such a long time that Louis Vuitton has or like Gucci has. Like, these are people who have literally been making clothes, shoes, bags for over a hundred years. And this man has probably been making it less than 75 at the very least. And I'm sure it's a lot less than that. And he is selling that much higher. And even with the shoes being around five hundred to six thousand dollars, his rate of current growth is at forty percent, and nobody sees it. Any type of fashion analyst, business analyst, financial analyst does not seeing that drop or decrease anytime soon. 
Now, there are so many different shoes on the market. And for someone who actually has walked in a pair of Christian Louboutins, they're not even comfortable. But just the name that red soul being able to say like, yeah, this is a pair of Christian Louboutins and they're cute at the end of the day is the reason why this notoriety has been able to happen. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise though that back in 2011, when Yves Saint Laurent came out with its own line of monochromatic shoes, that Christian Louboutin raised his eyebrows and was asking like, you know, what's going on? So in this collection, YSL decided to make, like I said, a monochromatic shoe and all the shoes were one color. So it would be the top half and the bottom half, including the sole. There was a green shoe, a red shoe, a blue shoe, but come back, a red shoe. That was the issue for Christian Louboutin. He saw the shoe and saw that it was red and said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. <laughs> we're not doing that. Like, we're not doing that. And that's where all of this began. Now, if we're going to take the side of Christian Louboutin for a second, it's really, really, really bold to come with a trademark law cut, lawsuit, just like I had said earlier. Because if he were to lose that, that means that literally anyone in this world, even me, could go take a shoe and make the sole red and sell it. You know, there's a difference between getting a shoe and spray painting it red and wearing it and actually producing a line of shoes that has a red sole. And because of this, everybody in the fashion industry, some people were telling him not to do it. Some people were saying, you know, like, just take your L, like, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody is really going to sit there and be like, oh, I'm going to buy a YSL shoe instead of that Christian Louis Vuitton, even though the price point was significantly different. And Christian Louis Vuitton said, nah, like, I'm going through with it. Now, on the side of YSL, with the company even being bold enough to produce a shoe, knowing that this was what Christian Louboutin would most likely do, a lot of different analysts believe that it was actually a whole legal strategy to be able to produce these shoes and then come out the next collection with shoes with just red soles or just green soles or just purple soles, but the top half of the shoe being a different color. And personally... I also do believe that that might have been the strategy. I don't even think that it was in malicious. Okay, well, actually, I don't know if you could say it wasn't in malicious intent just because the fashion industry is cutthroat. But I don't even think it was something that was just like, yeah, we're trying to put Christian Louis Vuitton out of sale. It literally was just, this is a business strategy. This is a legal strategy. So when you actually go into the lawsuit, it was treated very highly publicized. It was kind of like a reality show, honestly. Tiffany and Cole backed Louis Vuitton because they knew, okay, if he loses this, that means that someone could start using Tiffany Blue. And if someone starts losing Tiffany Blue, this case would definitely be precedent for why they would be allowed to use that color. And color politics is something that is very big in the fashion industry because it's like, you know, is that right for you to be able to trademark a color? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it really fair or is it the specific usage of that color that should be trademarked? And even Diane von Furstenberg, both her and Christian Louboutin came together, decked out to look really nice, walked in together and she came in, you know, she's a very known person in the fashion law field. She was actually a part of opening the Fashion Law Institute as well. So it was like a major like 
almost like ban YSL type of deal in the fashion industry. Now, in the federal district court, Louis Vuitton actually was defeated by Judge Victor Marrero. And his opinion was that the intent to trademark a color such as red violates and prohibits anything that goes with trademark, especially with the aesthetic functionality part of trademarking. So right here, we're going to put a little pinpoint. With trademark, that is one of the major, major issues that I personally feel like is wrong, but a lot of people find it very complex in order to even have any type of litigation because of this specific part of trademark law. Now, you cannot trademark the aesthetic functionality of something. So like, let's say I come out with a t-shirt today that has 15 flowers on it. There are different flowers. There are roses, there are lilies, peonies, different flowers all over it, right? And every single shirt is the same. It's the same structure, the same everything. If someone were to come out with another flower t-shirt with almost the same thing, even if it was altered just a little bit, I'm not allowed to go and take that up against them. Now, I could fight it just because I can actually fight it. But legally, that's not what trademarking is allowed to do. Now back to the case. So... When he did this, he basically said it was completely wrong for Christian Louboutin to think he could do this. And he was like, yeah, it's not happening. The fashion industry was shook, to say the least. Everybody was like, whoa. Like, I was sure Christian Louboutin was about to win this case. Tiffany was like, nah, we're not about to do this. Like, <laughs> it was, it became a problem. But thankfully, in the court of law, you can do appeals. Now, on his appeal to the Second Circuit... His decision was overturned, but it was kind of a win-win on both sides. So for one, Christian Louboutin kept his trademark and was allowed to trademark Red Souls specifically. But because of the fact that YSL had a whole monochromatic shoe that was red all throughout, it technically did not infringe on his trademark. Now, this was good for Christian Louboutin because thankfully he did not lose his trademark, of course, and it was good for YSL because, you know, they didn't have to pull their shoe off the market. But it was really complex because it's just like, okay, if I can do this, now Tiffany is going to sit here and think, okay, but if we're doing blue, does that mean we can only trademark the blue for our packaging? Does that mean that someone could use the Tiffany blue color in some other way some other sense and it's just really important that this case became such a monumental and landmark case i mean thank you christian louboutin because you have set precedent for a lot of different things even glossier right now who is a skincare brand skincare and makeup brand are known for using millennial pink and now they're even trying to go as far to trademark that color in their packaging and that's a case that's underneath the court system right now and i it's also under a lot of scrutiny just because people are just like, are you really allowed to do that? Also, Glossier has not been out as fairly as long as any of these other brands that have been mentioned. So it's just like you really need to establish yourself first before really going all the way to the point where you could just say, I want to trademark this color. Now, personally, Glossier is actually the skincare line that I use. So I do know for a fact that when I see that pink packaging, when I see that pink pouch, when I see that pink box, 
it's Glossier. Like I know it for a fact, but establishing yourself in that sense to where people who don't even necessarily use your products, but know that your product is associated with this color, with this cut in a clothing or anything like that is how we get into another part of trademarking called trade dress that makes it really complex for a lot of designers to really establish themselves. But it also takes time for them to establish themselves. So when it comes to the actual having of the trademark, the U.S. government protects trademarks in a first-to-use type of system. So this means that you have to actually use it and be like selling your item of clothing, you know, bag, whatever, before you go ahead and register it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is one of the... Like something I stress to every fashion designer that I personally know or any like creative director that I know, like making sure you know that this is a specific part of the U.S. government that will really help you establish yourself. And it also has a directory. So even if someone is going and trying to trademark something and they realize that someone else has already trademarked it, it's basically having a directory for more people to be able to learn of other fashion brands and even just people trying to learn about fashion and things like that. So you have to take it. It's not necessary, of course, to put it into the U.S. Patent Office, but it's it's just a step that I feel like personally is something that establishes yourself, one, professionally, and two, it's just like it safeguards any type of, you know, just like stealing of your ideas, cough, cough, Virgil. So it's like... Personally, I think that that is a smart thing, but unlike copyright and patent rights, trademark rights do not have a fixed duration. So with copyrights, I talked about how, um, sorry, not with copyrights, in the Yeezy Gap Telfar situation, I talked about how with Telfar being able to be that designer with Gap, it was a big miscommunication and complex issue around how long was the Telfar and Gap collaboration supposed to be in order for Telfar to get that money back from them just pulling away from him, not saying anything, not paying the full design price, and then going ahead with Yeezy. So Trademark doesn't have this. Trademark's can last until the owner decides like I'm not using this anymore and even then like if the owner stopped using a certain trademark for like 15 years and then in 2000 like 35 2045 2055 decided I want to use this again they can use it so a federal trademark of course only has 10 years and When I say only 10 years, it's not necessarily that it goes up in 10 years. It's just that you have to renew it in those 10 years. And now we're going to specifically go into trade dress because that's something that I kind of got a little frustrated with when I was doing a lot of my research in undergrad and even postgrad, just like doing my own personal research. It was something that I really got frustrated with because it was just like, I feel like it's it's just this extra thing that like it does have its positive effects but at the same time it's like I feel like they're going so hard to prove that fashion is an art when fashion is just an art like medium painting and things like this don't have to go through some of the legalities that fashion has to go through and this was something that I was just like so perplexed about So trade dress is like a subcategory of trademarking and it's very relevant because of the fact that it provides 
protection of the overall image of a product, not just like the logo, but the actual color, shape, size, the way it's configured, all of that. And as long as the design has the same source identifying function as like a traditional trademark, such as a logo or a word mark, the marker configuration is distinctive, of course. And the definition of trade dress is just really broad, but it extends to the total image of a product. And that is one of the things that I liked about trade dress because it was just like, you know, there are certain things in fashion that it's like you could simply copy it and it doesn't even look like you're copying because it's like, oh, a million other people do that. Like I wasn't copying it because you did it. Like it's, I was just inspired. With trade dress, you have to establish that there is a secondary knowing of your product. So like not like a logo, but like, for example, Gucci, the green and red and green. Everybody knows Gucci for those three colors. I mean, well, technically two colors, but three color configuration. Everyone knows Gucci for it. So if some brand were to come out today with those three colors in that sp- same specific like configuration, it would be like, what are you doing? And the thing is that's hard is you have the burden of proof of proving that everybody knows your brand for those three colors. Now, that is honestly, I feel like hard if you're not a bigger brand, you're not this European brand that's been around for a hundred years, has been in fashion, you know, runways since, you know, in France, Paris, Milan, all this. But it's just, it, it's annoying because of that fact but at the same time it is protecting just that certain people don't try and do redundant things on instagram i talked about how virgil tried to trademark the zip tie now i have a pair of off-white shoes and i do not even think that that's the first thing that i think of when i think of off-white like at all like that's not the first thing I think of at all if anything I think of the quotation marks and even that Virgil went as far as trying to trademark those and I feel like something like that is redundant either way he was declined both times in the office of trademark and patenting in the U.S. but it's these certain elements that is just like it's necessary in fashion because of those type of people those type of sharks that do things like that because had he done that, that means no one else can use a zip tie, even if it's like a zip tie to like help the shoe be like put together or like a zip tie that would like protect the box of the shoe or something like that. Like that's how redundant he was trying to be with the copyright. And I have my own personal views of Virgil, of course, but that does not impact my bias of feeling that way about it. It's, I mean, clearly it was redundant because it got rejected. And even down to like the Birkin bag, like that shape of the Birkin bag, that squareness, the hardware in the front, like that's something that has been established over years. Like even the story of the Birkin bag being that Hermes was on the flight and literally saw Jane Birkin and she was like, oh, I have such a problem with carrying all my stuff in a purse that's still stylish, but also big enough to have my stuff in an airplane. And he drew up a bag for her right there. He still had to establish that everybody knows that this is a Birkin bag. Like if someone were to make a bag that looks similar to a Birkin bag, people would be like, oh, they're copying a Birkin bag. Not, oh, that's a cute bag. And that's how you establish trade dress specifically within trademarking, which is what a lot of 
designers, that's the way that their legal counsel goes with trying to establish a trademark when it comes to any type of litigation. It's usually trade dress, but trademarking in general really covers probably the most Patenting gets into specifics, but trademarks covers the most and copyright is just the easiest to obtain. And that will definitely be covered in part three, the final and concluding part of Brand Protection 101. And just like I always say, I want to thank you guys for coming all the way to the end and listening. Always remember to please rate me on Apple Music or Spotify or even give me five stars if you don't want to write anything. This is Grace Azuike and this is The Label Law. I'm so fresh like this